Author's Preface and Introduction of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Author's Preface. The Rougon Macquart series will be composed of about twenty different novels. Ever since 1869, the general plan has been traced, and I have been following it with extreme rigour. The Assommoir came at its time. I wrote it, as I shall write the others, without deviating for a second from my straight line. That is what constitutes my strength. I have a goal towards which I am advancing. When the Assommoir appeared in a newspaper, it was attacked with unexampled brutality, denounced, accused of every crime. Is it very necessary to explain here, in a few lines, my intentions as a writer? I have sought to picture the fatal downfall of a family of workpeople in the pestilential surroundings of our Faubourg. After drunkenness and idleness come the loosening of family ties the filth engendered by progressive forgetfulness of all upright sentiments, and then, as denouement, shame and death. It is simply a lesson in morality. The Assommoir is certainly the most chaste of my works. Often have I had to point to sores far more frightful. The style alone has shocked. Anger has been aroused by the words. My crime consists in having had the literary curiosity of gathering together and running through a highly worked mould the language of the people. Ah, the style, therein lies the great crime. Yet dictionaries of this language exist. Men of letters study it and enjoy its piquancy, and the unpremeditatedness and the strength of its conceptions. It is a treat for burrowing grammarians. Nevertheless, no one has perceived that my wish was to produce a purely philological work, which I believe to be of keen historical and social interest. I do not seek to defend myself, though. My work will defend me. It is a work of truth, the first novel of the people which does not lie, and which possesses the odour of the people. And one must not conclude that all the lower classes are bad, for my characters are not bad, they are only ignorant, and spoilt by the surroundings of rough work and misery amidst which they live. Only it is necessary to read my novels, to understand them, to see them clearly as a whole, before entertaining the grotesque and odious judgments formed beforehand, which are circulating about my person and my works. Ah, if only it were known! how my friends laugh at the amazing legend which serves to amuse the crowd. If it were only known that the blood-drinker, the ferocious novelist, is a worthy citizen, a man of study and of art, living discreetly in his corner, and whose sole ambition is to leave behind him a work as vast and lifelike as he can. I contradict no story. I work and I leave to time and to the good faith of the public the task of unearthing me from beneath the heap of nonsense and abuse that has been piled up. Emile Zola
Notes upon the Assommoir by Signor Edmondo de Amicis Once in a railway carriage, I saw a Frenchman, who was reading a book very attentively, exhibit from time to time signs of surprise. Suddenly, while I was trying to discover the title upon the cover, he exclaimed, Oh, this is disgusting, and put the volume into his valise in the most contemptuous manner. He remained for some moments lost in thought, then reopened the valise, took up the book again, and began reading. He might have finished a couple of pages, when he suddenly burst out into a hearty laugh, and turning to his companion, said, Ah, my dear friend, here is the most marvellous description of a wedding dinner. Then he resumed his reading, showing plainly that he was enjoying it intensely. The book was the Assommoir, and that which happened to the Frenchman when perusing it occurs to all who take up the novels of Zola for the first time. You must conquer the first feeling of repugnance. Then, whatever may be the final judgment pronounced upon the writer, you are glad to have read his works, and you arrive at the conclusion that you ought to have read them. The first effect produced, particularly after the perusal of other works, is similar to that experienced on coming out of a close and heated theatre, when one feels the first whiff of fresh air in one's face with a keen sense of pleasure, even if it bring with it an odour not altogether agreeable. After reading Zola's novels, it seems as though in all others, even in the truest, there were a veil between the reader and the things described and there is present to our minds the same difference as exists between the representations of human faces on canvas and the reflections of the same faces in a mirror. It is like finding truth for the first time. Certain it is that no matter how strong you may be, and whether or no you have le nez solide, like Gervaise at the hospital, sometimes you spring back as if from a sudden whiff of foul air. But even at these points, as at almost every page, though we may violently protest, this is too much, there is a devil in us which laughs and frolics and enjoys himself hugely over our discomfiture. You feel the same pleasure that you would in hearing a very blunt man talk, even if he were thoroughly vulgar, a man who expresses, as Othello says, his worst ideas in his worst language, who describes what he sees, repeats what he hears, says what he thinks and tells what he is, without regard for anyone's feelings, and just as if he were talking to himself, à la bonne heure. From the very first lines, you know with whom you are dealing. Delicate persons withdraw, that is an understood thing. Zola does not conceal or embellish anything, either sentiments, thoughts, conversations, acts or places. He is at once a judicious romancer, a surgeon, a casuist, a physiologist, and an expert chancellor of the exchequer, who thus raises every veil, putting his hands into everything and calling a spade a spade, not heeding, but rather being greatly surprised at your astonishment. Morally, he unveils in his characters those deepest feelings which are generally profound secrets, tremblingly whispered through the grating of the confessional. Materially, he makes us aware of every odour, every flavour, and every contact. 
In language, he scarcely refrains from those few unspeakable words which naughty boys stealthily seek for in the dictionary. No one has ever gone further in this extreme, and you really do not know whether you ought most to admire his talent or his courage. Among the myriads of characters in novels whom we remember, Zola's remain crowded on one side and are the boldest and most tangible of all. We have not only seen them pass and heard them talk, but have jostled against them, felt their breath, and become conscious of the odour of their flesh and their garments. We have seen the blood circulating beneath their skins, know in what positions they sleep, what they eat, how they dress and undress. We understand the difference between their temperaments and ours, their most secret appetites, the most passionate anger of their language, their gestures, their grimaces, the spots on their linen, the dirt in their nails, etc. And with characters he also imprints upon our mind places, because he looks at everything with the keen glance which embraces all, and which lets nothing escape. In a room already drawn and painted, the light is moved, and he interrupts the story to tell us whither it glides upon what the ray of the flame falls in its new position, and how the legs of a chair and the hinges of a door gleam in a dark corner. From the description of a shop, he makes us understand that it has just struck twelve, or lacks nearly an hour of sunset. He notes all the shadows, all the spots on the sun all the shades of colour which succeed each other from hour to hour upon the wall, and presents everything with such marvellous distinctness that five years after reading we remember the appearance the upholstery presented about five o'clock in the evening when the curtains had been drawn, and the effect this appearance produced upon the mind of a person seated in the corner of that particular room. He never forgets anything and gives life to everything, there is nothing before which his omnipotent pencil stops, neither soiled linen, the manners of drunken men, unclean flesh or decayed bodies. Among all these things, in all these places, the air of which we breathe, and in which we see and touch everything, moves a varied crowd of women corrupt to the marrow, foul-mouthed shopkeepers, cunning bankers, knavish priests, prostitutes, dandies, ruffians, and human scum of every kind and shape, among which appears sometimes, like a rara avis, a good man. Amongst them all they do a little of everything, swaying to and fro between the prisoner's dock and the hospital, the pawn-shop and the tavern, amidst all the passions and brutish tastes, sunk in the mire up to the chin, in a thick and heavy atmosphere, barely freshened from time to time by the breath of a lovely affection, and stirred alternately by plebeian sickness and the heart-rending cries of the famished and the dying. Despite all this, it may be resolutely affirmed that Émile Zola is a moral writer. He is one of the most moral novelists of France, and it is really astonishing how anyone can doubt this. He makes us note the smell of vice, not its perfume. His nude figures are those of the anatomical table, which do not inspire the slightest immoral thought. There is not one of his books, not even the crudest, that does not leave in the soul pure, firm and immutable aversion or scorn for the base passions of which he treats. Brutally, pitilessly, 
and without hypocrisy, he strips vice naked and holds it up to ridicule, standing so far off from it that he does not graze it with his garments. Forced by his hand, it is vice itself that says, Detest me and pass by. His novels, he himself says, are really morals in action. The scandal which comes from them is only for the eyes and ears, and as he holds back as a man from the mire in which his pen is dipped, so does he as a writer keep completely aloof from the characters which he has created. There is perhaps no other modern author who conceals himself more skilfully in his works. After reading all his novels, one cannot understand who or what he is. He is a profound observer, a powerful painter, and a wonderful writer. Strong, without respect for mankind, brusque, resolute, bold, rather ill-humoured, and little given to benevolence. But you know nothing more of him. Only that, although you do not see his entire face through the pages of his books, you catch a glimpse of his forehead, scored with a straight and deep furrow, and you fancy that he must have seen, at no great distance, a large portion of the misery and vice which he describes. And he seems to be a man who, having been offended by the world, revenges himself by tearing from her her mask, and exhibiting her for the first time as she really is, for the most part odious and disgusting. A thorough conviction guides and strengthens him that he ought to speak and describe the truth at any risk or any cost, just as it is, boldly, entirely, and without any concealment. Strength is the pre-eminent gift of Zola, and anyone wishing to describe him must say in the first place, he is powerful. Every one of his novels is un grand tour de force, an enormous weight which he raises from the ground, whilst doing all that in him lies to conceal the effort. After reading the last page, one is forced to exclaim, Ah, what a hand! Like those three sots in the Assommoir, when speaking of the Marquis, who had thrown three ruffians to the ground without even taking his gloves off. And the sudden appearance of this novelist in his shirt-sleeves, with his hairy chest and rough voice, who in the most impudent manner and in the open street says everything to everybody, in the midst of a crowd of novelists in black suits, well-educated and smiling, who say a thousand obscene things in a decent fashion in those little romances, Couleurs de Rose, which are written for boudoir and the stage, is in truth an event in literature. Herein lies his greatest merit. He has flung into the air with one kick all the toilet articles of literature, and has washed with a dowless dishcloth the bedizened face of truth. The publication of the Assommoir was originally commenced in the Bien Public, but was left off half-finished. So many were the protests launched against this horror by the subscribers. Then it was printed in a literary journal, and before it was finished those hot polemics commenced, which became so furious after the publication of the work in a volume, and which will be remembered among the fiercest literary battles of the present day. These polemics gave a powerful impulse to the success of the novel and it was a noisy, enormous, and incredible success. It had been years since so much had been heard about any book. 
For a long time, Paris talked of nothing but the Assommoir. One heard it loudly discussed in the cafés, theatres, reading rooms, and even in the shops, and this by its fanatical admirers, who were more in number than its bitter adversaries. The unheard-of brutality of the novel seemed a challenge, a slap at Paris, a calumny against the French people, and they called the book a dirty thing to be handled with the tongs, a monstrous abortion, and a galley offence, and held against the author all the abuse that was possible, from the name of the enemy of his country to that of literary sewer, without choosing their words. The theatrical revue of the end of the year represented him in the attire of a garbage-gatherer who goes about collecting filth with a hook in the streets of Paris. It was no longer criticism, he said. It was downright slaughter. They denied his talent, originality, style, and even grammar. There were even those who would not discuss him, and they came very near to personal challenges in the streets. And the most extravagantly odious rumours were circulated respecting him. He was spoken of as a bundle of vice, a half-brute, a man without heart, like Lantier, a beast like Salted Mouse, and an ugly individual, like his father, Bazouge the Mute. But meanwhile, editions of the Assommoir succeeded editions. The dispassionate gastronomist said in a low voice that the novel was a masterpiece. The Parisian populace read it largely because they found in it their boulevard, Vivette and shop life, indelibly depicted with new colours and touches of the brush, in comparison with which all others seemed feeble, and the most enraged critics were obliged to recognise the fact that in those pages which had been such a target there was something that eternally blunted the points of their arrows. The great success of the Assommoir made Zola's other novels sought after, and one may safely affirm that he became celebrated then. Through my friend Parodi, I had the honour of meeting Zola and of passing several hours with him. In speaking of the Assommoir, he said, The writing of this work was a torture to me. It is the book which has cost me the most trouble in putting together the small details upon which it rests. I intended writing a novel on alcohol. I didn't know anything further. I had collected a number of notes on the effects of the abuse of alcohol. I had determined to make a brute die the kind of death that Coupeau does. I did not know, however, who would be the victim. Before even looking for him, I went to the hospital of Saint Anne to study sickness and death like a physician. Then I assigned to Gervaise the occupation of a laundress and instantly thought of that description of a real wash-house in which I had myself passed many hours. Then, without knowing anything of Gouget, whom I next imagined, I thought of making use of the recollections of the workshop of an ironmonger and blacksmith, where I had passed half-holidays at a time when I was a boy. In the same way, before having woven the thread of my romance, I had already prepared the description of a dinner in Gervaise's shop, and of the visit to the museum of the Louvre. I had already studied my types of working men, the assommoir of old Colombe, the shops, the Hôtel Boncoeur, everything, in fact. When all that remained was disposed of, I commenced to occupy myself with that which was to happen, 
and reason thus while writing it. Gervaise comes to Paris with Lantier, her lover. What will follow? Lantier is a mauvais sujet, so he leaves her. Then, will you credit it, I came to a standstill here and could not go on for several days. After some delay I took another step. Gervaise, thus abandoned, it is natural that she should marry again. She does so, and marries the zinc worker, Goupeau. This is the man who is to die at Saint-Anne. But here I was stopped again. In order to put the personages and scenes which I had in my head in their respective places, and to give some sort of a framework to the novel, I needed one more fact, one only, that would connect the two preceding ones. These three facts would be sufficient, the rest was all found, prepared, and written out in my mind. But I could not get hold of this third fact. I passed several days quite worried and discontented, when suddenly one morning I was seized with an idea. Lantier finds Gervaise again, makes friends with Coupeau, installs himself in the house, and then a family of three is established, such as I have often seen, and a ruin follows. I breathe again. The novel is completed. Saying this, Sola opened the box, took out a roll of manuscript, and placed it before me. It contained the first studies of the Assommoir on so many fly-leaves. On the first leaves was a sketch of the characters, notes about the person, temperament, and character. I found the miroir caractéristique of Gervaise, Coupeau, Mama Coupeau, the Laurieux, the Bush, Gouget, and Madame Lerat. All of them were there. The notes seemed like those of the registrar of a court, written in laconic and free language, like that of the novel, and interpolated with short remarks, such as, Born like this, educated in this manner. He will conduct himself in this way. In one place was written, What else can a rascal of this kind do? Among others, I was struck with a sketch of Lantier, composed of nothing but a list of adjectives, each one stronger than the other, such as grossier, sensuel, brutal, égoïste, polisson. In some parts was written, Use such and such a one, someone known to the author, all written in large, clear characters and in perfect order. Then I saw sketches of places, scarcely outlined, but as accurate as the drawing of an engineer. There were a number of them. All the assommoir was drawn, the streets of the quarter in which the plot was laid, with the corners and signs of the shops, the zigzag which Gervaise took to avoid the creditors, the Sunday escapades of Nana, the peregrinations of the set of topers from Bastringue to Bastringue, and from Boussagneau to Boussagneau, the hospital and slaughterhouse, between which on that terrible evening came and went the poor ironing-woman when maddened by hunger. The great house of Maresco was traced minutely, all the upper story, the landings, windows, the den of the mute, Father Bru's hole, all those dark passages in which one could hear un souffle de crevaison, those walls which resounded like empty vaults, those doors through which were heard the music of blows, and the cries of Mioche dying from hunger. There was even the plan of Gervaise's shop, room by room, with indications of beds and tables and some places erased and corrected. One could see that Zola had amused himself by the hour, 
quite forgetting, perhaps, the story, so buried was he in his fiction, as if it were a true record. With regard to the title of the work, it may be mentioned that L'Assommoir was the name given derisively to a tavern at Belleville, which subsequently became noted under that designation. It was then adopted by the proprietor, and has since become the slang term for those low drinking haunts, where the common people imbibe adulterated spirits which shorten their existence. The term assommoir literally means a loaded bludgeon, or that weapon ironically termed a life-preserver, in short, anything that will fell, stun, or kill. And according to Monsieur Alfred Delvaux, the author of a French slang dictionary, it is a curious fact that Russian robbers reverse the metaphor, and nickname a bludgeon champagne. It is scarcely necessary to point out that the loaded bludgeon in the hands of a ruffian and the pernicious spirits dispensed at establishments of the above-mentioned character produce a like result. End of Author's Note and Introduction Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey.